Before we dive into the word today, um, one quick thing I want you guys to be aware of and know is coming up and going on. It's one of our biggest outreach. I would not interrupt the word of God to give you this if I did not know that people came and became a part of MCC and got baptized at MCC because of this event. So it is that much weight to it. Uh, what I'm talking about is our event called Trunk or Treat. Trunk or Treat is an event that we do here at MCC. Thousands of people show up here at MCC and dozens of those people end up getting connected to MCC because of this. It's an amazing event where we serve our community. And so um, in order for this to happen, uh, we need you to happen. We need you to roll up your sleeves, put on your Batman costume and open up your trunk and go buy as much candy as you possibly can to make this event happen. Um, if attendance numbers stay the way that they're at, um, we are going to need a lot of candy. Uh, last year, I told you, if you're not planning on serving at this event, you owe us three bags of candy. That is your, uh, thus saith the Lord obligation to bring in three bags of candy to this. But due to the nature of the fact that we actually ran out of candy last year because so many people showed up, I am upping that to four bags of candy. Now this year. So if you're not coming, you're not volunteering, you're not helping out at this, you owe us four bags of candy. And I'm not talking about one bag of Skittles. I'm talking about the bag of the bags of Skittles. Okay. So just so you know what we're talking about there. All right. Uh, grab your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter four. That's where we're going to be today. Ephesians chapter four. Go on down to verse 11. That's where we're going to start. We're going to go 11 through 16 today. And dive into God's word to set up a little bit what's going on here. The book of Ephesians is a, a letter written to a church in a city that was similar to us. A lot of hustle bustle, a lot of, a lot of things going on. People trying to figure out who they really were, uh, trying to make sure that they weren't uh, just being a part of their community, but making sure they were being a part of Christ first. And so Paul writes this church of uh, first generation believers, people who didn't grow up going to Sunday school, didn't grow up with flannel graph or any of the things that we grew up with. No VBS, no Awanas, no none of that. And he's trying to help these grown adults figure out what in the world does it mean to have my identity in Christ. If my identity is in Christ, what does my activity look like? How am I supposed to actually live different if this is who God is and this is who he's saying I am in him? And so he starts out chapters one, two, and three by saying, this is your identity in Christ. And you gotta get this first. I'm gonna spend three chapters helping you understand your identity in Christ. And then he makes this turning point at verse, or at chapter four. And he says, okay, because of all this, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he goes on in four, five, and six to explain what this walk actually looks like. And the reason we've called this kind of sub-series as we've been journeying through Ephesians, odd is good, is because in chapters one, two, and three, you realize that this God, he does some odd things. This God adopts wretched sinners like us. This God sends his one and only perfect son so that we can have life in him even though we were cursed, even though that we were wicked, and even though that we were uh, children of disobedience, he says, I'm gonna adopt you into my family and set you up to where you're not even just like, hey, you gotta get to hang out in the basement, but I'm going to lift you up eventually in due time to where you rule and reign alongside even my son, that all the power and all the gifts and all the abilities that are made available in him that I've given to him, I'm actually gonna give to you so that you can make my name, so that you can magnify here, magnify me on earth and so that even the unseen world would know the type of God that I am. So that's some odd stuff. And this God who says, this is, this is the odd God I am, and you are my odd people now. Then he says, hey, we're going we're gonna to live odd lifestyles here until Christ returns. So odd is not bad anymore. Odd is good. And he walks into this message in chapter 4, and he says, this call that you've received is a call to unity, to be a people who at the very same time are not uniform, do not look like each other, do not think like each other, do not necessarily vote like each other or, or raise the same amount of money as each other, or make the same amount of money as each other. You are gonna be a diverse group of people. But in your diversity, is still going to be unity. In your diversity, the fact that you are very different than each other is going to make you have an intense, amazing weapons against the dark side. And your unity and your diversity 
are going to be one of your greatest weapons to show the type of God I really am to the world looking on. And he goes on from there to say, there's one father, there's one spirit, there's one baptism, there's one faith. And he's saying to this group of people who are very diverse, look around like we are. He's saying, there's one God, there's one God who's over us. And so uh, you people over there who maybe have a little less money, you people over there who think a little different, you're not in on a lesser God. You're not on a lesser spirit. You didn't have a lesser baptism. There's one God who's over this. And then he goes on to say, he's over all, in all, and through all. He's saying like, he's in charge of all of this. But then he kind of takes it off the big collective whole and he starts looking at each of individuals in the eye and he says, but to each and every one of you, you have been given a gift according to Christ and his grace. And that gift was given to you so that you could grow in maturity and that you would know you're growing in maturity because you're growing in unity with the body of Christ. In chapter four right here, Paul is making one thing very clear. That it is impossible to mature as a Christian outside of the church of Christ. That you can go sit in your quiet time, you can go get into your prayer closet and you can pray and pray and pray and read and read and read and read. But if you want to know that you're actually maturing, the way that you understand that you're actually maturing in Christ is you look around and you see is more unity happening between me and my life and the body of Christ. That's how we know. And what he does is he knows we would have a really hard time with that. And so he sends spiritual gifts by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can actually live that out. He's gonna explain some of those gifts in our pastors today. And we're gonna figure out how we actually take these gifts, allow them to be used in our life to grow us up into maturity in Christ. So if you've got a Bible, let's read this together. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, from him, the whole body joined together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of God. Y'all ready to dive in? I'll take that cough as a resounding amen. Yes, let's go. <laughs> Ephesians 4.11. All right. So he says, so Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the shepherds and teachers. Okay. So if, if yours, yours may translate uh, pastors as shepherds. Same, same root word there. So 4.11, before we dive into what all this is talking about, we got to understand why the so is there, all right? So the so, we got to understand the so before we can go into all of this. First of all, he has said, and he's used this illustration about a king in Psalm 68. This is the verse that's above this. We talked about this last week. In Psalm 68, David is referencing this uh, imagery of God like a conquering king going from his nation into a foreign nation to a foreign territory, taking captives and taking the spoils of war and then doing what was a common practice even by human kings, taking those spoils of war and then distributing those out to his people as gifts because he conquered an enemy territory. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's saying Jesus has done the exact same thing. Jesus, a foreign king, came from heaven into enemy territory 
territory. This, this place that was planet earth ruled and reigned where sin ruled and reigned and did its thing. Where sin ultimately didn't lead people just to bad lives, but sin led people to death. Jesus comes in and doesn't just conquer bad things on earth, conquers the baddest thing, the thing that all the bad things ultimately into and lead to death. He raises from the grave, conquers death. And because he conquers death, he also conquers all the sin that leads to death. So Jesus is the king that Psalm 68 is talking about who comes to earth through his resurrection is victorious. And then just like the conquering king would take the plunders of war, Jesus takes the fear that he is now defeated and he turns it into the supernatural gift of faith. Jesus takes the greed that he has defeated at the cross and through his empty tomb and he turns it into your supernatural spiritual gift of giving. Jesus takes all of the lies of the world and redeems them and restores them through his resurrection so that we can have the spiritual gift of teaching truth. And so what this means is everybody in this room who is in Christ, you have a gift, but your gift wasn't just given to you like the Oprah Winfrey show. You have a gift that was given to you like a medal of honor because someone had to die for you to be able to receive it. Jesus died, gave his life on the cross to make a way so that you could have redemption, so that you could be a pure, righteous vessel in which his gift could actually even fit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who delivers that gift to us. Because after all, it is a spiritual gift. So the Holy Spirit delivers those gifts to us. And when you know that someone died, that God died, in order for you to have the spiritual gift that you have, it should change the way you think about using it. And if you know you're in Christ, you know you're a Christian, then that means that you have been given this. Now, you may not know what it is. You may not have unlocked that yet. You may have ignored that. But everybody, he says, has, has a gift. And then what he does here in verse 11 is he begins to talk about a few specific gifts. This is not a list containing all of the gifts, the only gifts that the Holy Spirit will give. I'm gonna tell you in a second why Paul picks out these few that he does here. But he says, these are some of the gifts. He says, so Christ gave, again, he's talking about giving gifts. So Christ himself gave, these are some of the gifts that he gave. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave the pastors, which are shepherds, and he gave teachers. So he says, he's giving these roles and it is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that these, some people have been given these gifts. Now, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time unpacking every single one of these roles, but I will just say a few things quickly on these. Apostles, I would say, and again, this is where we can uh, agree to disagree and it doesn't make us not be able to be church family. I don't think there are any more apostles. I think an apostle, if you, if you go back and you look at scripture, there were 12 of those guys and one was replaced. Uh, I believe um, Matthias replaced Judas and Paul may have been the, the one else in that as well. Paul calls himself, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. The biblical standard for being an apostle was you saw the resurrected Jesus. You locked eyes with him. You, you saw him and you received a message from him to go and do something. That is an apostle. The word for apostle, the root word there for apostle, because again, we live in a culture where we see people have the, give themselves these titles. So we got to understand what in the world do we maybe mean on that? I'm not saying it's necessarily sinful to do that. I just think it may be dangerous to go on the biblical implications. It means that you have seen eye to eye the resurrected Jesus, which I think most of the time when somebody would say they are apostle, what they're maybe so identifying as is someone who's doing the task of the apostle but not necessarily someone who should be given the true title of the apostle. I'm one of the 12, I'm a apostle. Now, me, I have done things that are apostolic in my life. We as a church would be more than willing to do apostolic things. 
Like if, we, if there's a large contingency of our people who are coming from Fayette County, we would raise up a leader and do an apostolic thing and send out a leader to go plant a, a Fayetteville, a, a Peachtree City church. And that would be an apostolic thing that we would do. But I would not identify me or the person we are sending as a new apostle. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain why I would say all that in a second. The next one on here is prophet. Now, a prophet, again, going back to scripture, the first time we see prophets show up on the scene is Old Testament prophets. And the prophets were sent by God to reveal truth about God, most of the time to convict them. They were sent by God to reveal things, characters about what, was going to get, what God was going to do next. The prophets were sent by the people to remind them of God's plan and to show them what God was going to do if they didn't basically get their act together, oftentimes is the case, and show them how God wanted to move on their behalf. They were given a message by God and called to be the mouthpiece of God to the people. They're giving a specific revelation. Now, both of these two groups, apostles and prophets, the things that God spoke to them, both of the groups in large part have become what we would call our Bible. Old Testament, you got books of the prophets. You got Daniels, you got Habakkuk. You, 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 you have these books of the Bible, Isaiah's. Mo, you, know, you, you have even the things that Moses said, Moses sent out as a prophet. And then you go even further to the apostle side of things. And again, if we're, we're, we're kind of deeming an a, a apostle as someone who has heard and seen the risen Lord, they've seen Jesus. Well, we would take our guys like the, the whole gospel. So let's just track with it here. We would take our guys like Matthew, who's one of the 12, who saw Jesus, saw him resurrected and take under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote a gospel account of him. You could take a guy like Mark. Now again, Mark was not an apostle, but what Mark did, and this is where the authority of his, the scripture that he wrote comes into account. Mark met and was, you know, best friends. His mentor was Peter. And so Mark goes and travels around with the apostle Peter, who also writes books of the Bible, Peter. And he tells Mark what to write down. And Mark gets his whole gospel account from Peter, the apostle. You take John. John is one of the 12. He was known as the apostle Jesus loved. And he takes and he writes down these things. Even Luke, Luke takes an account and Luke gets to know Peter. Luke gets to, to be a guy who travels around and, and checks out the inerrancy of this account that's given about Jesus. Now, no, Luke is not, I would not say Luke is an apostle but Luke is going off the testimony of the apostles to be able to write this stuff down that eventually becomes our scripture. And then the guy who wrote more books of the Bible than any other person, the apostle Paul. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus to go kill Christians. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He shows up there as the visible resurrected Jesus to Paul and radically changes his life and calls this former Pharisee, Saul, to go be the apostle to the Gentiles, now named Paul. And he goes out and he begins to write these letters. He begins to write these, these passages of scripture that become our New Testament, okay? And this is why these two groups are important. And this is why I would say anybody who would label themselves either of those two terms right now, it, it has to be taken with a, with a very, very deep sense of seriousness and an utmost level of spiritual maturity to call yourself either of those. Here's why. Because we have the Bible. Okay, two, two main reasons why I would say be very cautious with either of those two terminologies and, and longing to be two of those things. The first one is this. 
Every single person, whether you're in Christ or not, you have access, and this is, this is what we take so much for granted. We have access to the full revealed word of God. Now, in their day and age, do you know what the church in Ephesus did not have? This. They did not have, they couldn't go, hey, what did Paul say to the Ephesians? Well, I wanna really learn some things about Jesus. The eyewitnesses of Jesus were still living as Paul writes this. Some of the reason why Paul says himself, this is why Christ gave apostles and the prophets is because there were literal apostles and prophets who were living there in that moment still. And so he's saying, hey, these guys were given this special message. We're gonna learn from them. But now we come to this place well, this is again, well, I'm not saying this, I'm definitely, I'm not saying it is sin. I'm saying this is definitely something to be cautious and aware of because the real danger does not come in the life of the prophet or the supposed apostle. The real danger comes in to the immature believer who may believe that their word truly is God's word. And how many times have we seen that manipulated? to when somebody could come to you and say, hey, I'm a prophet of God and here's the message that he has for you. You need to buy me a new Corvette. You laugh, but man, that happens every day. You need to send this money to me. And I've heard from God, I'm a prophet of God. Send this stuff to me and you'll get X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. And and here's, here's why I would say, if you never run into an apostle, if you never run into a prophet, your life with Christ will be fully complete. Two, th- two reasons why. You have the Bible and if you were in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And friend, that is all you need. That is all you need for a life in godliness. Now, God may use people to speak into your life. I, I think when I was a youth pastor, I probably used, uh, I used prophecy more than ever before to be able to tell teenagers what was coming. Hey, I, if you don't have a plan for what you're gonna do in the backseat of your Honda Accord, if you wait till you get in the backseat of a Honda Accord to make a plan for how you're gonna remain pure, you're stupid. Like that's prophecy. That's a bad idea. You're gonna fail. I'm gonna tell you now, you're gonna fail. Make a plan. Don't get in the Accord. Double date. Was that prophetic? I, I, hope, I hope so. I think it helped some people. You may be able to speak those things in, into life, but here's how you know that prophecy is not prophecy. If it does not line up with God's word, it is not prophecy. If it is not backed up by God's word, it is not prophecy. It has to be here. And this is the filter that we see it through. And I, honestly, to me, this is the role of a prophet. A prophet is kind of just to be someone who highlights what's already in God's word to you, to show it to you and to draw your attention to it. It's not to show you anything new, but to show you what's been there, maybe so that you see it in a new way and in a new light based off of the circumstances that you're actually in. Now, there's more stuff up here. I can't go all into that all day long, but I want you guys to be aware. I want to try to protect you from that and, and from the things and people and all those things, just so you know how to address those with spiritual maturity. Next, he says they're evangelists. Now this word um, is the same word that we use from um, the go- where the gospel is rooted. It's the Greek word euangelion. Uh, it's hard to even say, uh, but it's where we get our word gospel. And so an evangelist is simply a good newser. That's basically what the word actually means is that I'm someone who goes out and gives out the good news. Now this good news is not new news that changes based off of every group I go to. It is the same news that the apostles and the prophets have already predicted and the same news that the uh, apostles have already said, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. And the evangelist is the one who takes that news that the apostles learned of first and passes that out to the people. And then these are the few that I would say like, these 100% truly do exist in the day and age church. I would say, don't be afraid of these. Don't be cautious around, oh, I'd still be cautious, but know that these are real life active roles in the body of Christ that we're meant to continue on. Pastors, which are pastor shepherds and teachers. Now, 
eventually what the, the, the historical church got was this canon of scripture. They, the church in Ephesus, the one we've been studying, they eventually got the letter from the apostle Paul. Now, Paul is writing and explaining to them that this is coming. I'm writing you through this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that that church, when they sit down in their living room and they begin to read through Paul's letter to Ephesus, they don't take it as, hmm, what do you think about this guy, Paul? Paul had already been there for three years, planning the church, pastoring the people, telling them things about Jesus. And so when, they, when he writes this to them, they write this as if the Holy Spirit, or they read this as if the Holy Spirit is communicating to them. And this is the word of God to us. This is a key word. This is authoritative in my life. I don't get to choose whether or not Paul's on this or not. They take his apostolic authority and then let that be what is influenced by God to actually change their life. Now, fast forward to when the Bible actually gets created. Now, we have the words, every word that Jesus ever wanted us to know that one of his chosen, Holy Spirit-inspired prophets ever wrote. We actually have that. Everything that he wanted one of his apostles to write down, to send out to his people, even 2,000 years later, we actually have that. We can read it. We know Jesus' life. We know Jesus' story. And the key thing here is, is four letters, W-O-R-D. We have the word of God. And if we're gonna say we're in Christ, then we have to believe that this truly is the inerrant, infallible word of God. It is living and active. And like it says in here, it is sharper than two-edged sword. It splits joint and marrow. It gets in between our heart and our soul. And it does the, the work that God actually wants to do on us to transform us into who Christ made us to be. So he comes out of the gates swinging and says, God gave all of these and every one of these roles has to do with the word. The apostle takes the word directly from the mouth of Christ. The prophet takes the word directly from the mouth of God. The evangelist takes the good news, the word of God, the shepherd. The shepherd doesn't just try to, hey, I wanna to try to get, make sure you have your life and your needs are taken care of. The shepherd, his job is to guide you to a place where you can get the food that is available in God's word so that it nourishes your life. And the teacher's doing the same thing. What is he teaching? He's not teaching life principles. He's not talking about how to have your best life now. The teacher is teaching you the word of God. All of these gifts are based on and contingent upon the word of God, which we would say is inspired by who? The Holy Spirit. Great job. You guys are on it today. So the Holy Spirit, you gotta make this connection. The Holy Spirit is what inspires and makes all of this word possible to these people, even now, this bottom two lines of people. And what happens through the Holy Spirit, giving that word to the people is then they act almost as a subsidiary, a kind of middleman to help deliver and expose the actual spiritual gifts to the people. That's why he says he's given us all of these, these roles of prophet, of, uh, pastor, shepherd, apostle, evangelist, he's given these roles, roles as a gift to the church so that these people who are able to understand God's word and teach God's word can do it in a way where they equip his people for works of service. And that equipping is the gifting to say it is the gift of the Holy Spirit that's gonna give the gift of the word to the men of God and women of God so that they can, through the word, help the people understand how to do the work of God so that the body of God can be built up. That's, that's the whole purpose in all of this is so that it can happen in this way. 
And so what, where we lean into this is go, okay, so there's these pastor types and shepherd types and teacher types. And those exist in McDonough Christian Church. Let's, let's, let's bring it on home for us, okay? Let's talk about churches. Let's talk about two church failed, failed models of how to do church. And you've, you know, if you, you've been a part of one of these, just nod your head. You don't gotta raise your hand or anything like this. You've been a part of the church where you have one pastor and he does everything. Usually this church is a little bit smaller because he can't do everything for everybody and expect it to grow to 700, 700, 900, 12,000 people because he's still fixing air condition units or calling to make sure air conditions get fixed. He's the one guy who does everything. He gets communion to every shut-in. He, he shows up at every funeral. He preaches every uh, you know, baptism. Service. He does everything. He preaches every time he does all that. That's one pastor doing one thing, okay? I would ask you, based off the passage of scripture that we just read, is that biblical? No. If his job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and he's the one person who does all the work of the ministry, that is not a biblical church model. Another one, and this is probably one that MCC is more susceptible to, is the model that says, well, we don't just want one pastor. Let's get a dozen or so. There's a lot of work to be, there's a lot of work to happen because there's a lot of people that are showing up. Let's just hire a bunch of pastors to do the work. Was there's more work to be done? Well, man, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of people that are coming from this, you know, out, out in the community thing. So let's hire a community pastor to go and do the community stuff. Oh, well, there's a lot of kids that are down there. Let's just hire one person to just go and hang out with the kids. Oh, well, we got a lot of people who want to gather into groups. Well, let's just hire a pastor so that he can tell all those people how they need to get in groups. Well, we want to, we want to teach people about apologetics. Well, let's hire an apologetics pastor. Well, we want to, we want to uh, you know, knit stuff together so that we can give it to people, you know, babies in the NICU. Well, let's, let's find a, a loving hands pastor who, who can go out and sew stuff and help people learn how to sew. Now, would that, is that a biblical model of how to do church? No, but that one exists. And that's the one we're most in danger of. And honestly, I feel like a lot of what I've been doing since the time that I've got here is trying to fight against that. Because let's just be real. Some of that crept in. Say, so, oh, we're growing. Oh man, things are going good. All oh, things are happening. Well, let's hire, let's hire. We got, bigger church means hire more people. Does it? That's a question I'm asking around the table at, at our staff meetings. What, what if there's a big giant financial crisis and people don't give? How's the church gonna grow? It's gonna grow by you guys doing the work of the ministry so that I don't have to go out and do my least favorite thing to ever do as a pastor, interview people. Oh, shoot me now. Man, goodness gracious. Look at resumes, man. I just, I'm just like, I'm just like, God, we just drop them out of the sky. We just teleport somebody like Philip in here. Jesus, come on. And so the, the big way that our, our staff has been leading and developing and, and training ourselves is to go, what, how can you give more of your job away? It's a question I'm asking my team on our one. How can you give more of yourself away? How can you give more of your roles and responsibility away? How can you give it away so that somebody else can do it? How can we equip the saints for the work of the ministry? Because if we really wanna see MCC grow, it's gonna happen when people are equipped, they do the works of the service and then the body's built up. So what that means is me, the elders and the leaders of the church, we can't come in and go, darn it, church just isn't growing. We have no right to do that if we have not equipped you. And we, we feel fully confident that we have given you everything you need to live a life of godliness, to do the works of service. And you guys, you can't come to us and go, I just wanna be a part of a church that's growing. And then we go, why aren't you doing anything? You go, cause I don't wanna do anything, but I still wanna be a part of a church that's growing. Those two things, those two realities don't exist. 
Okay? If you want to be a part of a growing, thriving church where people, baptism waters every single Sunday, stir it. You want to be a part of a church where, where like kids are just overflowing out of all the crevices of the, of the building. You want to be a part of a church that's reeking, that's making a dent, that's pushing back to the gates of hell here in Henry County. Then what that means is you got to take the equipment that we're trying to give you and we got to actually be able to live that out, put that into practice in our life so that the church can be built up. And what I love about this is it has not, it, it like it cannot be because of one person's charisma, one person's ability to be able to teach, a great guy's ability to be able to sing. We will not grow. Or here's what I would say, we'll not, we won't grow a church. I can be this crazy charismatic, get everybody hyped up and, and we can have you know, a guy that sounds like, I don't know, the, the songbird of our generation on stage singing songs up here every single Sunday, Michael W. Smith mixed with the guy down the road at Eagles Landing and he can be the guy who's singing songs and we may build a giant crowd, but it will not be a biblical church because you're not equipped to do the work of the ministry and it's not really being built up in a way that when I die, my big personality falls off the stage because I get hit by a bus in traffic because I was trying to go around it fast. If the whole thing was built on my personality or my gifting, then the house of cards falls because it was a house of cards, not a house of Christ. And, and so what, what I want for, for us to, to lean into is we gotta be equipped. This, this Greek word for equip is uh, it's the same word that was used when there's a story about the disciples mending their nets on the seashore. And they come and they're, they're, they're fixing their nets, they're putting them together, they're untangling things, they're getting all the wrong things out. And that's some of what preaching the gospel is. That's some of what the teaching is. It's, it's you coming in and we're gonna untangle these things in your life. We're gonna get it to be back at its full potential. We're gonna bring some healing. We're gonna make sure you have everything you need to be able to do this life. He says, we're equipping them for works of service. It's a cool word here. When it says his people, these are the people who are being equipped. The Greek word there, some of your, if you read in the ESV, it says saints instead of his people. The Greek word there is agios. Remember what that means? That's saints, that's holy. That's the called out ones. The word agios right there, when it says the pastor types, their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It could just as well read the pastor's job is to equip the odd ones for the work of the ministry. Cause that's what saint means. And that's why the most biblical title we could ever give for the section of scripture that we're going through is odd is good. Because that's what agios means. It means you're odd, it means you're different. You're called out, you're set apart. There's something unique about you. The, the same way that the temple was the holy temple in Jerusalem. It was different than any other building. You could see that, you could look across the skyline and you went, oh, boom, there's a temple. He's saying, that's the way my people now is a living embodiment, the living temple. That's how they should be. Where you go, you, you look around and you, you don't even have to get down in the weeds of their life. You just kind of can scan the room and go, mm, different. They're different. It's Hagios. He says, I'm gonna equip my people for the works of service. I love this passage right here. This word service, diakonia. Diakonia. Let me say a few times really fast and you tell me which uh, church title you hear in there. Diakonia, diakonia. What do you hear? Deacons. Some of you guys come up, where's y'all, you recovering Baptists come in here and you go, where are your deacons at? <laughs> yeah. I go there all around. Anybody you see serving at MCC is someone who has been equipped to do that work of service. And that work of service, that, that word right there is diakonia. It is where that whole title of a deacon came from. The people who are serving. So there's a deacon over there who put your coffee in your cup this morning. There's a deacon over there taking care of your kid. There's deacons all around this place. 
I grew up thinking they were just the guys who smoked cigarettes in the parking lot after church. <laughs> like, y'all got them, you got them everywhere. And so like, you want to, like, some of you, like, you love roles and you love titles and like, you want to have titles and stuff. Well, look, if you want to start secretly calling yourself a deacon at MCC, you can start telling that, but you better be serving somewhere. Like you better really be serving and you can call yourself a deacon all you want. Go for it and know that that's, that's biblical, that you're serving. You're doing acts of service to build up the body of Christ and know that when you're doing that, you're laying down yourself. You're living in light of Mark 10, 45, where Jesus said, hey, do you want to be great? You got to be a servant. In Mark 10, 45, he said, the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. And so what he's saying here is that the, the key thing to know that you're actually living in spiritual maturity is that you're willing to serve in a way that lifts other people up. This is, this is the crazy thing about being a follower of Jesus. We become a follower of Jesus. If, we, if the scripture is true, like the whole Godhead comes and lives inside of us. Like God, the Trinity enters your life, which is, again, I'll spend the rest of my life figuring out what in the world the implications of that really are. The Trinity enters into my life. But as that happens, I'm still an infant. <laughs> Nobody is born again into a post-puberty Christian. You're born again as a baby, which is why Paul says what he says right here. Watch this. He says, until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God and become mature. So he's like, hey, we got to grow up. Now, again, do you have to tell somebody who's already grown up and mature that they need to grow up and mature? No, they're already grown up and mature. He says, but we've got to reach unity. And the, the way we'll know we are reaching maturity is that you see unity. So every time that I bump into, or we bump into, or we go through some stuff as a church and I see disunity happening, it just gives me a gentle reminder. We have room to grow. We're, we're teenagers. All right. So this is why he says, he comes through here. He's kind of the backwards argument. He says, then when we, when we start doing that, we start living in unity and being more mature, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. So what he's saying here essentially is, guys, then we'll actually grow up. So I wanna walk through to close you guys out with our three signs that you're a spiritual baby. Three signs of, of spiritual immaturity, infancy. First one is, is this, you're not steady. This is why he says right here, you'll be uh, like infants, you'll be tossed back and forth by the waves. You're not steady. You ever, you ever just like been around a kid who's just now learned to walk? They take a few steps and what do they do? Fall, they just fall down. They just fall down a whole lot. They're not steady. And when this, what this comes to and what this means in our own lives is that at the end of the day, we've got to be able to be people who understand that we have to experience a life where there is this aspect of us following Jesus that isn't contingent with how we feel. That we don't have to have these short attention spans that just latch onto the next you know, bells and whistles and moving things that we're actually steady and secure. And we actually understand the word of God in a way that actually can change our lives. But what happens so much for a lot of us is we have these very short attention spans. 
you know, like my boys, when they were little and I wanted to cut their fingernails, which was, I was like doing brain surgery, I felt like, because I was always afraid that I was going to cut down to the quick and blood was going to be everywhere. And they're just wiggling on it and they're crazy and they pull back and they jerk and all their movements are just, you know, because they're babies, they're just noodles. But what I would do in order to distract them enough to where they would be still is there was this baby Einstein YouTube video that I would play and it had like babies on it and puppets and and all those little sounds that come with videos like that. And both of my boys, I could put that in front of them. They'd be, you know, just still as all could be. And I could, I could be able to cut their fingernails, right? And you know this with your own kids and the, the, the kids that you've been around in your life. If you go down to children's ministry, you're going to start to see toys. You're going to start to see buzzing lights and moving things and things that make all these noise to try to distract them. But then when you go into... <laughs> this classroom that's right over here, you're not gonna find any of those toys anymore, will you? Because it's an adult classroom. In this classroom, what will you find? Books. All right, you know you're spiritually mature when you can read books. When you, when you don't need the flashy Instagram video that grabs your attention and gives you all this thing. You don't have to go to the conference. You don't have to go to this thing. You don't have to hear an engaging bells and whistles, flashy sermon. You don't have to have, you know, all the, you just go, I just need a book. I just need one really good book. There's life changing that I could spend the next 50 years of my life trying to dive into and I would never fully understand. Spiritual maturity says I'm, I'm steady enough to just be able to go to the book and need the book. I don't need pictures. Maps are enough. I just, I just need to go to the book because that's where the truth is. I don't need all the flashes and bells and whistles. The other thing is you, three signs of spiritual babies. The next one is you're blown around by bad teaching. Jessica is a really good mom. And one of the things that she would do as being a really good mom, especially when our kids were younger, is anytime a babysitter would come over, she would make sure the babysitter had the number to poison control because she knows that kids are, they, they don't know how to decipher between what is chicken nuggets, dog food, or rat poisoning. And spiritually speaking, the way that we know that we're no longer spiritual babies is we actually begin to learn how to decipher those kinds of teaching. We learn how to decipher whether or not this teaching is spiritual milk and spiritual meat. Now, at some points in your life, again, if you start out as an infant, what do you need to have? You need to have milk. Paul told the church in Corinth, he said, I'd love to be able to come to you and start giving you meat, but I need to give you milk right now. You're all babies. And see, spiritually speaking, we need to be able to understand what is spiritual meat, what is spiritual meat, milk, but we also need to understand what is spiritual dog food. Now, when I was in middle school, somebody dared me to eat a milk bone, which is a dog treat, and I didn't die, okay? I can just, maybe it's why I am the way I am, um, but I didn't die, okay? But could I have lived off dog treats for my whole entire life? No, and, and I, hope, I hope I'm not a pastor who's given you the spiritual equivalent of dog treats every single week, but there are many Christians under shallow presentations of the gospel, under uh, shallow part, uh, you know, parsing out of God's word. And maybe, maybe you've experienced this, maybe, maybe you've come out of this, I, I don't know. But if we're not careful, because we're spiritual infants, we don't know the difference. So if I set all three of those things out in front of my kid, you're just hoping and praying. They don't know which one is good, which one is not. They're just willing to pick any of those things up and put them in their mouth, right? And heaven forbid, they pick up the thing that is rat poisoning. The rat poison teaching that is the, the prosperity gospel that says, come and believe these things about God and he'll make your life healthy and wealthy. The rat poison teaching that says, live your truth. 
The rat poison of teaching that says that, well, well, God said that and we really believed and stood on that 50 or 60 years ago. But now that kind of culture has done this other thing, we're going to, because of what culture is doing, we're going to start to kind of redefine what we mean. And, and we're going to try to say, you know, that really used to be black and white. But in light of what you guys are saying, let's try to turn it into gray. Poison. And you'll know you're a spiritual grown up when you're able to discern those things. Here, here's, a, here's a sign I would say you start to know some of this. How many of you remember ever before the age of 13 looking at the nutritional facts on the back of something you were eating? You remember ever doing that before 13? Like checking it out and being like, oh, I'm concerned with how many carbohydrates and how much sugar, how much sodium is in this? Before 13, anybody? No, definitely not before five or six, right? Infancy, you weren't even able to. You didn't know how to read. But anybody plus 30, what are you looking at? Probably on a weekly basis. You're flipping things over. And sometimes you just don't want to. I don't even want to know. I know how good this is. I don't even want to look. All right, but, but what's wild is, is, is we, we're, we need to be people, and this is how you know you're getting spiritually mature. You'll walk away from my maybe good teaching. You'll walk away from your campus group or your small group's teaching, and you'll flip it back over and you'll take your Bible out and you'll look at the nutritional facts and go, did that line up? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna line what just was said right there. I'm gonna look at the back of the label. I'm gonna go back to the, the place where that, that food should have came from, and I'm gonna see if that matches up. Someone who's spiritually mature, they, they don't just trust what they're being fed. They actually look at the back of the label. They see what's actually going on there. The last sign of a spiritual baby is this. Self-centered. And you knew this one. <laughs> like, this is why Paul, and I'll go back up kind of out of our passage right here. This is why he goes up to 4.2. And he says, be completely humble and gentle, bearing with another another in love. Be patient, bearing with another in love. See, babies, you know this. They just cry when they want their way babies, they don't know how to believe the best about their mom because she's not there right yet to give it the nourishment. They're just crying. They don't know that you got something going on in the other room. They don't know that you're trying to talk to and care with the other kid. They're just going to cry. They're self-centered. And we know that we're, we're beginning to actually grow up when we become Jesus-centered. And then after that, we become other-centered and then after that, when the time comes, we think about other people or we think about ourselves. See, the, the more you mature in Christ, you will, under, you will begin to understand the beauty and the art of self-forgetfulness. Being able to remember others before you remember yourself, before you start measuring yourself and seeing what you did and what you didn't do. And see, the self-centeredness, a lot of times we think about, close your eyes and imagine a self-centered person. Think about the things a self-centered person says and does. Okay, you got that in your head? And most of you, again, I'm not gonna try to get inside your brain, but most of you, you probably thought about what I would describe as a positive self-centered person. Not saying that like they're self-centered positivity, but their self-centeredness is rooted in their egotistical narcissism that believes that they are the most important person in the world, right? That's the self-centeredness that most oftentimes we think of. But I've been in ministry long enough to know that there's two sides to the self-centered coin. There's also what I would call the negative self-centered person. This is the person who texts you on Sunday night at around nine o'clock and says, hey, you didn't stop to talk to me today. Is everything okay? Why are you mad at me? And you're like, I didn't even know you were at church. Like, my bad. This is the person who, because they're insecure with who they are on the inside, 
And again, this is still self-centeredness. It's just rooted in some, it's rooted instead of a positive self-image, it's rooted in a negative self-image. They, they believe the worst. They always think that somebody's leaving them out. They always think that somebody is spiting them. Somebody intentionally did this thing because they don't like my thing or what I'm about. That happens too. And to, 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 to those, and again, you know who you are. You know where you, you and again, we, we probably vacillate between one or the other. I would say to both sides of those, especially to the person who may have the, the more negative self-centeredness to where you're always believing the worst and you, you, you find a hard time not writing a really bad story in your head and, and, and you're always kind of second guessing things. I would say this to you, friend. If you don't have to validate yourself to anybody else, if Jesus died on the cross for you, you're validated. You are enough. He loves you. He cares for you. You don't have to vindicate. You, you don't have to like have anybody else's approval, ha, even have anybody else's attention. Now, is it good to have other people's attention or approval? Yeah, like God's hardwired some of that in there, but not to seek that before we seek and know we're rooted in the approval of God. So when we're mature, we go, I don't need you to notice me because I know God does. And I, that's what I really know. And that's what I'm okay with. And so, and this is, this is one, I'll let you, I'll let you guys behind the veil last week. I'll let you behind the veil again. Um, there's been multiple times in my life and, and maybe even still, whereas a pastor, being a, being a pastor can be a lonely place. Um, and sometimes I, I just find myself kind of going, God, like, I just want somebody to, to mentor me and, or to, to come and, you know, come alongside. Like, I feel like in every relationship, I'm the one who's like, hey, man, look, I want to pour into you. And I, sometimes I can just be like, no, no let's, why does anybody want to do that to me, God? <laughs> and then I was whining to God about that not too long ago. And I felt like I was like, why aren't you doing that to anybody else? Like, don't ask me for something you're not willing to do yourself. And maybe God doesn't talk to you that way. <laughs> and it's okay if he doesn't. But he, I feel like he, that's kind of how he leans into me and goes, son, well, um, why don't you do that? You're sitting around, and, you know, sitting around asking for me to do something for you that you're, you're, you're not willing to do to somebody else. Like, have I not given you enough wisdom that you could pour it back into somebody else? And, and what I found is like, sometimes you're gonna go through seasons in life where nobody's pouring into you and that's no human is pouring into you. And God has gotta be that one. You're gonna walk through a, a prodigal kid. You're gonna walk through a divorce. You're gonna walk through that type of stuff. And every human being is going to abandon you. And you've gotta be able to have God on your side. God is your primary influence. God is the one who's speaking into your life so that you can then pour out to somebody else. Because there's gonna be times where you're gonna look around and have a, have a Jesus moment where you look on the cross and it's, too, you know, it, it's nothing. You're gonna walk up the hill of Golgotha by yourself. You're gonna be out in Gethsemane by yourself, praying, sweating drops of blood, going, God, change the situation. And even, and Jesus heard silence that night in the garden of Gethsemane so that you could know you never will when you cry out to God in your loneliness. And spiritual maturity is knowing I'm secure in my father. He hears my prayer. He is with me in this moment. Even though nobody else is, he's here. And what you begin to find is that you start pouring out what God's pouring in. You start to go, what I thought I really needed, which is somebody to pat me on the back and tell me all these things and everything else. Like God can be that person to me. And if, if God sends that person, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not taking my P's and Q's and it's not changing how I feel about God based off of what he does and doesn't do after the fact that he's already saved my butt. If he saved me, I'm good. This is why Jesus tells a story, the last little parable on growing up. In Luke 10, there's a story about Jesus sending the disciples out into a foreign country, uh, not a foreign, just sending them out. He says, I want you guys to go out. I want you to like 
go out and start telling people about the, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they go out and they do that. And they come back and they're just hyped to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, we were casting out demons. We were doing all this stuff. They're all just like fist bumping. I mean, imagine, you know, bro, disciples are probably all younger than I am. They're just casting out demons, doing amazing Jesus stuff. They come back to Jesus and they're hyped. And Jesus does not match their energy. He says, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Why are you so psyched up? Chill. What you should be excited about, fellows, is you should rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Paraphrase, boys, grow up. You're getting hype about God because he's answering your prayers. Trust me, he might not tomorrow. You can't get fired up about what God is doing or doing or not doing and the power, he's, how he's working in miraculous ways for you. Sometimes you're gonna have a dark night of the soul, but what you gotta know, what you gotta really rejoice in, the thing that's gotta give you the most like ampness, the most fired upness, the most confidence to go through hell on earth is to know that your name is written in heaven, in his book. That's what fires you up. That's what gives you the thing, strength to face tomorrow, knowing know what's gonna come. That's it. He says, grow up. Mature faith knows, come whatever may. Come whatever even what God may do through me for my gifts whether there's power throughout my life, whether there's miraculous things throughout my life, God's, in my, God's on the throne, God's in control, and God's working in my life. And so he says, this is what it looks like to be mature. So we're getting ready to sing a song here as we wrap up that talks about this maturity that he invites us into. And it gives us a picture of what that is ultimately gonna look like. When we stand before God in heaven, when the redeemed saints stand before him and we are together as this family, welcomed in by a father where we have our homecoming. But be cautious in this song, homecoming does not happen when Jesus comes and returns and restores heaven on earth and we all get to gather around and eat at the great banquet and all that other type of stuff. Homecoming happened today. This is homecoming. This is God's people. When we gather together and we sing these songs, it's a foretaste of what is to come, that we will stand before the risen King, that we will stand before the great Jehovah God, and we will sing praise to him as well. That, that we, in that moment when we are there with him, some of the things that happen on earth will be happening there. We'll be breaking bread together, same way we eat in small groups. We'll be serving each other together, the same way we do that here. There'll be kids running around, singing, dancing, and laughing the same way they are here. Homecoming is happening. It is not something that's just going to happen. And as you pray this, as you sing this to God, I pray that you know he's with you. He's working. And he's building a great family together here. That's an honor to be a part of with you. Let me pray for us and we'll sing together. Jesus, be with us as we worship you in these moments. Lead and guide us out of our own sinfulness, out of our own self-centeredness and bring your people to a place of maturity. Bring us to a place where we Lean into your truth, trust your ways and never for a second forget that it's you who's in charge of all of it. We surrender to you, move and work in the ways that only you can. Grow us up in your name, amen.